see more innovation in packaging and processing at Pack Expo International than anywhere else in the world. It's the show that defines where the industry is headed, with the solutions that define where your business can go. Discover cutting-edge packaging technology, processing equipment, new materials, sustainable solutions, supply chain resources, and much, much more. You'll walk away with innovative solutions to challenges big and small. Register at PackExpoInternational.com. You're listening to Unpacked with PMMI, where we share the latest packaging and processing industry insights, research, and innovations to help you advance your business. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Unpacked with PMMI. I'm your host, Sean Riley, and today we have a returning guest, Packaging World Editor Matt Reynolds, for what we hope is going to be a reoccurring section here on the pod, where we talk with Matt about the latest things that he sees in the industry, and maybe some trends or things that he sees happening in the near future. With that, welcome to the pod, Matt. Thanks. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I guess off the top, what... Based off of last year, going into this year, what is something that jumps out at you as a trend or, or or something that you know is going to be a big deal in 2020? Yeah, well, I think especially in late 2019, uh, we noticed um, the big picture is that for the last decade or so, uh, big brand owners um, have been putting together pretty ambitious. Um, sustainability goals. Uh, and many of those goals center around nice round numbers. And one of those round numbers was 2020 being kind of the beginning of these target goals. There's a few more that are, uh, you know, have a certain percentage of recycled, uh, recyclable material by 2025, some by 2030, and so on. But we're really starting to hit that point where these big brand owners uh, and CPGs have set forth uh, certain benchmarks. And I think we're seeing a ramping up of, of sustainability uh, in, in order to hit what used to be lofty but distant goals, but now are becoming imminent dates. And I think you're going to end up seeing kind of a renaissance in recycling. Now, we've been recycling for many years to certain amount of effect. Uh, Americans compared to, say, Europeans may not be recycling as much, but compared to some of the other routes to true sustainability, it might be that recycling, especially if we're doing it right, might be the lowest barrier to to clear, to get towards or at least lean towards a truly you know circular economy. So I think even in Pack Expo Las Vegas, which was a few months back, well, we saw really the the push towards mono materials. I think the big picture there is that the U.S. and well everybody, but uh, we had frequently leaned on the multi layer materials that we had always used. Uh, multi-layer, meaning multiple different materials within the same polymer or laminated together to produce certain different mechanical properties. You know, one layer of polymer would be used for tensile strength, one for puncture resistance, one to prevent oxygen ingress or water permeability. So you'd have these laminates of multiple different materials put together to be able to successfully deliver whatever product, soda or whatever it might be, to your doorstep. The downside was trying to recycle these multi-layer materials has been difficult. And we've always had the previously had the outlet of being able to sell our material to China. Well, that's no longer an option. So suddenly all that recycled material is back in our laps. And because we had always been able to use the outlet of China, we haven't we don't have the most sophisticated 
uh, infrastructure, recycle-ready MRFs uh, that are here to be able to handle that. So anyways, instead of trying to, and of course, you're, you've got competing technologies and the MRFs are getting better at what they do. But one simpler route, instead of trying to create technologies to, to recycle these multi-layer materials, is to instead change the material into an easily recyclable monolayer. So that was something that was just all over Pack Expo Las Vegas, the, this kind of this return to PE, straight PE, and, and so on. So just just for one second to, to dumb this down for, for someone like me to understand. So basically we had technology that we used forever and we decided by, by this I mean the, the materials we had technology that we used for most uh, you know most of the packaging last 50 60 70 years whatever then we we went to these multi-layered materials and the reason was because they were recyclable or just they were better they were lighter yeah what, what would be the reason that we just to a quick summary of why we evolved away from the PEs and stuff to begin with yeah well some of the materials themselves wouldn't accomplish everything that was necessary for a package or a container to accomplish to, you know, whether that's shelf life or letting light into the package or puncture resistance. All the, all the while we're adding these layers to optimize the package itself to allow it the most shelf life and to be as fresh as possible when delivered. And maybe a straight PE couldn't handle that, or maybe a, a certain kind of PET or HDPE couldn't create in one package what multiple functional layers could do. Okay. So you're improving the package, right? You're, so you're improving the package so it lasts longer. Uh, maybe it looks better, yada, yada. Better shelf life. Right, better shelf life. But it, it hindered its recyclability. So that could, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate, could kind of be the, well, that's why we weren't able to recycle this as well because of all these. Exactly. But we've always had that outlet of selling selling our recycled material to China. First of all, we don't have, you know, it's, it's a huge consumer push just to get people to recycle to begin with. And then, uh, you know, once you accomplish that, you have to have some outlet. There needs to be a push to get consumers to recycle and to be willing to recycle, but there needs to be a pull. There needs to be a market that's going to be um, accepting that uh, recycled material for some purpose to create something. It's not all done through altruism, although we'd like to think it. There needs to be a market. And I think we're seeing that quite a bit now. I think one example <laughs> that I have on my list here is, uh, is HLP Clearfold. Uh, recently, they do all sorts of um, uh, like clam style and different types of containers, uh, plastic containers, PET containers. They had traditionally gone to roughly, I don't know, maybe 25 to 30 percent maximum recycled content. You know, so you'd have seventy percent uh, virgin PET accompanied with thirty percent recycled content because recycled once it goes through a process or two, it doesn't have all the, the the properties that we can instill in a virgin PET. But HLP Clearfold at Pack Expo Las Vegas, I believe it was debuted there, is now offering different containers that are in one hundred percent RPET, so recycled PET, post consumer polymers, post consumer right. resins, PCRs. So. What we're seeing there is if that's possible, then there's that pull, then there's a market for us to be recycling. So we should be pushing consumers to recycle. And then there's a market on the back end for those MRFs to clean up the material, to whether it's grind, ground it down or get it down to whatever base polymer that needs to go. And then there's going to be a market for it to survive after. And you know, in an ideal world and down the road, that would happen in a circular fashion. You keep doing that over and over again. Yeah. So at the end of the day, it still has to be tied to money. There has to be some, yeah, there has to be a, <laughs> like I said, it's not all altruism. There's a, right. but, but it's doable. I mean, you can create a market for this and that's, I think a really positive thing. I just think that the, the heat is dialed up right now that we're getting towards moving towards these, um, what you 
used to be distant dates, like benchmark dates to get to whatever the goals might have been, 2020, 2025, 2030, right. they're suddenly looking like they're right you know, in the, the near future. And uh, I think the push towards recycling you know, is really ramping up in that respect. Okay. So from a cost standpoint, because again, we're still talking money um, at the end of the day, was there a barrier previously and is there one now in terms of using virgin versus um, recycled? Yeah, virgin is, virgin is just much cheaper to make. Um, so it's less expensive. Um, and a lot of that goes back to infrastructure. Again, we had this outlet to be able to sell all of our polymer refuse to, to one market. That market suddenly closed, leaving us in the lurch with MRFs that are you know, well-meaning, but they just don't have the, the infrastructure ready to be able to handle this stuff. And you know, they're working in parallel with our industry to get there, but it's a matter of uh, it's an expensive and time-consuming and laborious process compared to uh, inexpensive version PET. So there is that cost component. But again, there's a th- certain threshold that eventually uh, it'll be worthwhile or the consumer will decide that it's worth uh, worth it to pay an extra 5, 10, 15 cents per unit uh, for fully recycled post-consumer content. We don't know. We haven't hit it yet. But all these things are toggle switches which move up and down and kind of balance the economy. It is. Yeah. And it's kind of a, this is supposed to be a, a, a generation that's coming up that's more environmentally friendly and more concerned with the climate and stuff like that. So it, it is kind of a put your money where your mouth is type of situation where to do this, it's going to cost, you know, like you said, it's 10 cents a product, but that adds up. Yeah. And honestly, uh, I think just yesterday, this is this is uh, timely. I think it was BlackRock announced yesterday that basically the the general economy and the way that they invest, and they've got, I think, $7 trillion in holdings. The way, so what they do is going to move the needle on the market regardless. But they're, they're changing their focus and how they're investing to uh, a more sustainable and climate-focused future because that's who their customer increasingly is, is going to be the millennial generation uh, who, is, who exemplifies exactly what you just discussed. And they're going to notice that you're, you know, you're using cheaper virgin material over recycled material, you know, to cut costs. But at this point, they're willing to to make up that difference. That's interesting that someone, like you said, that can move the needle that big is is involved. Okay, I got us a little bit off track. So let me bring, it's my fault. I'll bring us back in. Oh, I was going to say that speaking of moving the needle, I mean, that's a, actually a good segue to the first point I was going to talk about. So I think in June of this year, and officially rolled out in October, Colgate Palmolive finally released or announced something they've been working on for years. And that's the first that we know of recyclable toothpaste tube. So we all know what, you know, what we expect of a toothpaste tube. We, we expect it to be able to last for a long time to, to arrive to us perfectly sealed condition and, you know, barrier layers that, that function to, to, to give it a long shelf life and, and a certain hand feel that we expect and a certain rigidity to be able to stand up in our vanity behind the mirror. But in order to create all those things that we expect out of a toothpaste tube, we long had to use multi-layer materials. There was a foil that was, so that's usually an aluminum style foil that was in one of the laminates. HDPE for some of the more rigid structures, LDPE for, I, I believe, for the hand feel. But regardless, it was a multi-layer structure that couldn't be recycled. But recently, uh, yeah, Colgate rolled out with this recyclable product that basically they nixed the foil entirely and created an HDP and LDP uh, that's high density and low density polyethylene combination it's, that will chop down at a MRF that will be uh, ground down to a granularity that is perfectly fine within the HDPE number two uh, recycling stream. So that's a, a big a big step forward in terms of monomaterial and, and personal care products. 
Absolutely. Now, can that be used, again, uh, dumbing it down a bit, that could be used for any sort recycled into any other product or will just strictly be a to keep feeding the toothpaste and, and, you know, those type of material? That's that's a good question. Um, I don't know what the post-consumer market for HDPE looks like, and you'd have to ask them. I think some of that turns into, you know, durable products like carpet or um, other, you know, stuff that you wouldn't think. But I would assume, okay. and this is, you know, me speaking out of school here, but I would assume that it could go back into the same stream to create the same product again at minimum. Um, but there's all, all sorts of different channels it could go into. Uh, many of which are durable. I mean, right down to building, I don't know, swing sets for children that'll last, endure Chicago or Philadelphia weather systems, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, what else do we got out there? Um, let's see. Well, I mentioned Clearfold, and that's kind of that pull. How about OEMs? Going back a little further in the, in the value chain, we're seeing OEMs are recognizing the need to be able to handle mono-layer materials, mono-materials. So while Previous multi-layer materials had been optimized to be really easily handled by mechanical machines, or in this case now nowadays servo machines, to be to be able to withstand you know tearing and stretching and so on that goes you know just the the amount of violence that occurs within these uh, these machines. Well, now going back to these mono monolayer materials, there needs to be a much more gentle handling, uh, a much more flexible handling of flexible materials, particularly films, PE. In this case, and we saw this again all over Pack Expo Las Vegas, and there was one in particular, a flow wrapper OEM, Cavana. So if they're handling flow wrappers or building flow wrappers, they're handling lots of film. And they recognize this, this kind of chain of starting with consumer pressure for you know recyclability, monomaterials. That initially puts pressure on two, two groups. It puts pressures on the food manufacturers or CPGs in general. Same thing for um, personal care, hygiene, that kind of stuff. But it also puts a lot of pressure on, you know, major supermarket chains, retail, Walmart, for sure, to come up with standards that their packaging is going to be, or a certain percentage of packaging is going to be recyclable. Uh, well, if there's pressure on food manufacturers and the supermarket chains, that in turn puts pressure on the converters, the film producers. So, so that's Dow and Dow's um, customers uh, who are converters that are making these films and, you know, and so on. But all of that backs up to the fact that those films are going to have to be run on packaging machinery. So, so the OEMs themselves are, are hyper aware that the machines that they're building are going to have to be flexible and, and delicate handling, have flexibility and delicate handling capabilities to handle mono materials when they previously had the luxury of running films that were optimized to be handled by machinery, among other things. Right. And it's interesting because as I'm sitting here thinking uh, a lifetime ago, I you know worked for a, a magazine that was dealing strictly with packaging machinery. And I remember when this first became a an issue or a topic, sustainability became a buzzword. And, you know, they say the right. late 2000s, um, most OEMs looked at it as something that, it, well, it doesn't affect us yet because or it's not going to affect us forever or for a while because it's something that's that has to work its way to, you know, down the supply chain or down the you know, from consumer to retailer to food manufacturer to converters to packaging machine manufacturer, there's a whole line it would have to hit. And it seems like, as you said, as we got to 2020 and now we're hitting these benchmark dates, it's now worked its way back to the the very machines that this stuff is going to be running through. And there's got to be a ton of machines out there that are going to have to, at some point, be, I guess, retrofitted to, yeah. to be able to handle it or, or new investment to buy new machinery. It's going to be a combination of both, but I mean, it's, it's, uh, 
I could see this as being an opportunity for OEMs sure. as brand owners, particularly uh, co-packers and so on, are forced to deal with a new generation of material. And of course, there's also, you could even go down the rabbit hole of bioplastics and, and uh, biodegradable materials. I wanted to kind of keep it to recycling here because that opens up a whole other can of worms. But I think the OEMs in general have kind of known this is coming. They're, they haven't had their head in the sand by any stretch. It's just a matter of that pull market. And we're finally, that wave of that pull market is, is finally hitting them. And and OEMs are aware. So I, I don't know about retrofitting. Hopefully it could be a boon to the market in terms of requiring, you know, new capital expenditures, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, that would, I mean, it would seem like the obvious, the more obvious would be, you know, more capital investment by the CPGs to, you know, get equipment that can handle all this stuff versus, so that would be a, obviously a boon market for the OEMs. Um, I yeah. guess but we don't want to go too long because we only know how long people can stay interested in recycling like you and I. So how about one more thing <laughs> um, with this renaissance of recycling that you think's out there? Yeah, well, I, this is one we talked about the uh, the different uh, mono materials, um, you know, one, two, five and so on on the uh, on the recycling mm-hmm. number chain. One that has really been a pain in the neck Um to keep this uh, G-rated pain in the neck for um, MRFs particularly, but for recycling in general has been polypropylene. And there's just a lot of polypropylene out there, especially for a company, let's say like Procter & Gamble. And that's not just in the packaging, it's in the products themselves. So uh, even though maybe PE or PET might be a larger volume item for for the package or the packaging material, when you consider the product itself, that's where PP polypropylene really gets its fingers into the mix. But recently, we spoke to Dr. John Lehman. He's uh, head of corporate R&D material science at PNG, and they seem to think, and I, I believe them, that they have a, a way around uh, recycling polypropylene that is just kind of kicking off now. The name of it, if I can find it, is believe Pure Cycle. Yeah, Pure Cycle, one word. Capital C. And basically, it was just the result of a, a long R&D effort at Procter & Gamble. But P&G knows that what they do isn't, you know, resins material science. So, you know, they put together a plan and found an investment company that they still have some sort of either controlling stake or partnership stake in that would, would take this ball and run with it to create a company that would be able to recycle polypropylene. And as of right now, it sounds like it's fully subscribed for 20 years. So <laughs> there's more than enough polypropylene to to be recycled. I think they're looking to create another another site in in Europe at the at the moment and uniquely about the process and this is kind of science nerdy, but normally certain techniques in in uh, recycling one is I think it's called pyro pyrolysis. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but that's basically taking the polymer down to its smallest unit. So it's basically, yeah, eating it all the way down to a single polymer unit, and then you can build it back up to basically whatever polymer you want from that basic unit. Pure Cycle doesn't do that. It actually is able to ground down to a certain size, wash, rinse. I think there's a solvent that's used to to liquefy whatever PP, but what it doesn't do is it doesn't break it down to that single unit. So basically, PP in, PP out, uh, or polypropylene in, polypropylene out. So... It was very science nerdy. Then the PPN, PPL, I had to laugh at like a two-year-old. Yeah, so no, that, that's about it. Yeah, I was, I was laughing too. Um, <laughs> but I mean, those are just a few examples of kind of this push towards monomaterials, both uh, the push and the pull of the market. And hopefully with uh, recycled post-consumer content being 
increasingly a portion or increasing its piece of the pie in terms of recycled packaging material, you know, that there'll be a pull there and then consumer willingness to to both A, recycle and B, buy recycled material. So all these things are converging in what I would think or hope would be some sort of a renaissance of recycling. Uh, it, to me, it also seems like the low-hanging fruit, it, it, it lets the company say that they're being... Again, this is I'm a little more jaded, you know, that it's it allows them to say we're being sustainable. It allow you know, look how environmental we're being. We're kicking up our recyclable game, even though this is technically something that everybody either thinks or thought was going on for the you know past 10 years or what have you. Well, there, there's yeah economic underpinnings to all of this. But that's the good news is that there are economic economic underpin, underpinnings to have because that means it can exist on its own without consistent governmental assistance or, or, or force regulation or anything like that. It can be its own self-sustaining thing, potentially. Nice. Okay. Well, then I just, be, I know we, we went a little bit over, but before I get rid of you, um, what, what are we looking at for the issue or, you know, the next issue of Packaging World? Is there something you want to tee yeah. out there that, you know, readers should be on the lookout for? So yeah, I've got a stack of papers I'm editing right now that we're um, we're covering cannabis. It's still an extremely fractured market, but some of the big picture takeaways I'm, I'm getting right now is just how mature it's become and how sophisticated packaging company or you know CPGs you would consider CPGs within the cannabis market are becoming. Mm-hmm. There had been like a, a so-called first wave in California and Washington and Colorado. Um, that consisted by and large of, you know, cannabis hobbyists, career changers, people who were enthusiasts, you might call them cannabis enthusiasts, who were starting these brands and getting going. But now as we see the second wave of states sweeping east, uh, just on the first of this year, I'm, I'm here in Chicago, so Illinois legalized rec- recreational cannabis. Uh, Michigan is there, Maryland is, oh, good for you. yeah, Massachusetts and Maryland and, and Michigan are on their way. We're seeing it a very different approach to getting these different licenses. And that approach is very sophisticated. It takes a brand owner point of view. So things that might be witchcraft to to a career changer or hobbyist, like, you know, supply chain and logistics and, mm-hmm. and last mile and all these sorts of things. That's second nature to somebody who's been in the, you know, the CPG you know, consumer products industry for, for many years. And that's what we're seeing. These new brands that are popping up are going to be available with the maturity and infrastructure and depth of knowledge to be able to handle this like any other brand owner, as opposed to, you know, like I said, for lack of a better word, uh, a marijuana enthusiast. Yeah. And it's, it's a loose analogy, but it's, you know, it's like the the craft brew guy that was making beer in his basement, you know, that eventually the Anheuser-Busch's of the world saw this stuff and realized that, you know, we can do it in a more efficient way. And it's kind of that, that quick evolution from, someone that was doing it as, like you said, a beer enthusiast to, you know, being mass produced by someone like, you know, Anheuser-Busch or InBev or something right. like that. It, it's, it mirrors, it's a, I think a perfect mirror it might be even faster, but we'll see as the difference is uh, there's federal laws mandating uh, alcohol and sure. it's still extremely sprint, splintered. But I think before long, you'll see some sort of singular federal attitude that will, will allow a lot more freedom and scalability for, for the brand owner sized companies in cannabis. That's perfect. Um, so with that, Matt, I want to really thank you for taking the time out of your day to uh, do this with us. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Unpacked with PMMI. Be sure to join us next time for more packaging and processing industry insights. Yeah, it's been fun and uh, looking forward to the next one.
please rate, review, and subscribe. To do that, go to the iTunes podcast or Spotify app on your phone and search for Unpacked with PMMI.